Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast, where the political, cultural, technological, and other influential forces of social and mass media are analyzed under the light of critical thinking. You will not find extremist dogma, political partisanship, or herd groupthink here. I won't attempt to convince you of anything. I want to take an unflinching look at complex, hard topics intellectually. In the end, I don't care what you think, just that you think critically, as this allows you to unleash your own intellectual freedom and creativity in how you view the world you live. I am Dr. David Hopkins, adjunct professor of the humanities, your guide on this journey. But enough with the introduction, let's get started. We are undeniably in a very tumultuous time in American politics. Both political parties seem dysfunctional. The traditional Democratic Party is being ripped apart by a far-left, nearly socialist-leaning faction. The Republicans, on the other hand, are also in a state of upheaval, as Donald Trump has taken over the views of the Republican Party in the era of the globalist-looking Bush family model has been turned into a very nationalist-leaning party. You either support Trump or you are an infamous, quote-unquote, never-Trumper. As each party pushes itself to a smaller corner of far left and far right, the middle is getting stretched, pulled, and disfigured. Compromise, it, it seems all but over, except in the most extreme situations in Washington, D.C., and that push to serve America first and the political party second is becoming more and more rare, despite the rhetoric to the contrary by the politicians during election season. As the political extremes gain more and more traction, an interesting phenomena has been emerging over, it's been about the last six to eight years. State attorney generals and other litigation of, well, uh, just about anything and everything from Washington, D.C. by the minority party is become so commonplace it's really not even a headline anymore. Most notably, lawsuits against Obamacare, wildly unpopular with Republicans, and immigration reform uh, put out by Donald Trump, wildly unpopular with liberals. I'm no attorney, but it goes something like this in its current iteration. Liberals in general hate, and I do mean hate, Donald Trump and whatever he and whatever he does, but specifically they really hate the build that wall mantra used during the last election cycle, the end of illegal immigration, kicking out those who came here illegally policies. They received incredible attention right after the election. So pretty much every attempt to halt immigration reform by the president was met with a lawsuit. Now, the way to achieve it in our political bureaucracy that we have right now, and it shows the current state of affair at its finest or ugliest, depending on how you want to look at it, um, a state AG, attorney general, or other litigant finds the most liberal and the most political judges they can find. They then file a lawsuit in that court against the reform. The judge, an activist, 
halts the reform, which causes the federal government to step in to defend and appeal, defend and appeal, until ultimately, generally, it'll make its way to the Supreme Court, whereby a ruling is made. So in the minimum, for the party in the minority, in this example, the Democrats, these quote-unquote lawsuits, they slow progress of the opposition party from enacting policy or reforms. So in the worst in the worst, it slows it down, and at best, it may literally prevent an administration from enacting a reform. And this repeats itself over and over again, as in President Trump's case, pretty much every decision he ever makes of any level of magnitude is instantaneously challenged in a liberal state to a liberal-leaning judge. Now, lest my conservative friends start thinking, yeah, this is definitely just a liberal problem, it's not. Barack Obama was challenged multiple times in court rather than it being a liberal state, a conservative state, and rather being a liberal judge, a conservative judge, and especially the one of most note was Obamacare and health care. So this is a modern American political phenomena. Neither the left nor the right are innocent in this, but they seem to do this with impunity and they seem to be doing it more and more as we drive further into the 21st century. My guess is our founding fathers would be aghast at this situation on a couple levels. First of all, never could they dream the power the federal government has wrestled from the states over the years. If they saw the amount of spending, the bureaucracy, the millions of federal government employees, and the staggering, suffocating national debt, they may not even recognize our country at all. Ironically, the United States of America was actually formed to escape tyrannical, all-powerful kingship. And now we nearly have an equal tyrant in the form of federal politicians with those arrogant noses held high, vetting down every means of justice, table scraps, benefits to buy votes, and and catering to special interest groups, almost like common prostitutes, when they should be serving the people. Secondly, through shrewd legal and lawyering maneuvering, and activist judges being appointed by partisan presidents and put into their position by partisan congressmen, we are now seeing the judiciary often carrying the water of political agendas due to the divide in Washington, D.C. It's scary. Along with the activist judges and activist state attorney generals carrying the banner of quote-unquote the law, but acting and sounding like a run-of-the-mill politician, we have the second phenomenon I want to talk about. Judges were always supposed to be apolitical, and they were never to be partisan. Now, almost every judge, it seems, is partisan. It's a travesty that has flown under the radar for far too long. We've all had this inkling of these judges not adhering to rule of the law, but a political agenda being seen. 
but it's causing serious problems because that partisanship in our legal aspect of society, that third leg of executive, congressional, and judicial, as it becomes more and more political, it allows us to see the emergence of something that had not been seen prior, and that's the emergence of these sanctuary cities. These cities are often, by the general public, seen as incredibly divisive. Uh, Could it actually be a catalyst for major political change in this country? So a sanctuary city is just a jurisdiction uh, that decides to limit enforcement of a law or a directive or to just simply ignore or turn the other cheek to a law or volunteer resources in support of a federal law or directive. Now, how they limit their participation, it ranges from just simply saying no to federal requests to conduct joint patrols. Uh, They may refuse to jail an individual uh, that the federal government would like detained who has broken a law or even refusing to gather information on an individual in question. In essence, any jurisdiction doesn't just have to be a city, but cities are the best known examples, but it could be a county, it could be a state, it could be a university, it could even be a school district that have basically asserted they're just simply not going to comply with a federal notice. As of yet, we have not seen in a grand display the federal government insist a city or state comply or face loss of funding, direct federal intervention by agents, although threats have been lobbed continually. Thus far, the federal government has not really stepped in to enforce in large measure these sanctuary cities. So since the Trump presidency, immigration or sanctuary cities, they number in the hundreds right now, Other, it's about 12 states that declare themselves as sanctuary states. Um, However, as with all politics, there's another side of the coin. So as liberals may tend to push gun control and gun confiscation on the extreme end, states such as Texas have declared they could become a sanctuary state or even some counties or some cities could declare themselves a sanctuary state from the from the federal government if at some point in time major restrictions are enacted by the federal government to control the second amendment even some very conservative states have declared they would consider becoming a sanctuary state for sanctity of of life and not allow abortion so this sanctuary state concept whether it's on the liberal side and going against Trump's immigration policy or potentially Second Amendment or whether it is uh, whether it's uh, abortion law, it eerily resembles a model of government not unknown in world history. It's called the city-state model of government. And the question in studying this and the the models of a city-state government, could the deep polarization between the far left and the far right drive us towards 
a more city-state model in America, are we already there in many ways? And we don't even fully grasp it yet. This happens in history that these changes come slowly and periodically, and they don't really become highly noticed until they're finally there. And, and what can happen when a city-state model falls apart? These are some of the questions. Ironically, the more power the federal government takes, the higher or greater the potential for a city-state model to emerge right in the middle of our representative democracy. It appears it is already happening. So let's, let's just think about this for a moment. The city-state form of governance has created grand superpowers over the ages. To name some of the most notable, and you could research them, the ancient Sumerian cities such as Uruk and Ur, ancient Egyptian city-states such as Thebes and Memphis, the Phoenician cities, the, the five Philistine city-states, uh, the city-states of ancient Greece, with really powerful poli such as Athens and Sparta and Thebes and Corinth. And the Roman Republic, believe it or not, it grew from the city-state into a grand power. Even in the Americas, the Mayan and other cultures of pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, which included cities such as Chichen, Itza, Tikal, Copan, and Monte Alban, all of these ran under this system of governance. And so they can be effective for very large, very powerful civilizations to work. And the model actually still exists today. Uh, the, the technical format changes from place to place, but the basics of a city-state model remain the same. Uh, some examples right now in 2020 include Monaco, Singapore, Vatican City, also, non-sovereign cities uh, can enjoy a high degree of autonomy and can be considered a city-state. Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong right now has been in the news over and over again as they are having much of their independence challenged now by China. But Hong Kong and Macau, along with independent members of the United Arab Emirates, most notably Dubai and Abu Dhabi, are often cited as such. So what is a city-state if you just had to define it in real simple terms? It's a political system where an independent sovereign city serves as the center of political, economic, cultural life and its contiguous territory. You know, in its truest form, it has the full right and power to govern itself and its citizens without any interference from outside governments. It also has its own currency and police force. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that last bit, maybe some of the early bit you could buy, but the last bit, there is no way. That's never going to happen here in the United States. And, and it's just not possible that a state is going to have its own autonomy to the point of having its own currency and police force. And, and that's probably true, but... You know, as I consider the gyrations that we see and the vast divide in perspective on life from state to state, you know, academics, myself included in this, we, we often get seduced into thought and theory that don't yield anything in practical real world. Yet, is it possible that we could become a city-state model 
without a civil war, without even a shot being fired, or a formal declaration of a change to our Constitution. It would be a kind of a morphing of our democracy through the tangles of legal mumbo-jumbo and gymnastics of political legal law and theory. We're seeing a lot of that with all of these sanctuary city declarations. It may actually be happening right now in the real world, not just theoretical. A recent article came to my attention from Breitbart. Now, this is a far-right-leaning online publication. Its audience are, are tend to be incredibly conservative. Right now, they happen to be strong supporters of Donald Trump. So we need to understand, if you've never heard of the term Breitbart, who they are and who their audience is. Uh, but I read this article, and it, it's worth maybe checking out because it's very pertinent to this discussion. And the name of the article is I'll Remain Sane and Calm Out Here in Rural America. And I want to just read a full segment of this article. It was written by John Nolte. Um, and I'm sure if you Google it, it'll come right up and, and you can read the whole thing. But as I said, um, keep in mind it's written from a very conservative standpoint for a conservative consumer. But the point is not the validity or invalidity of, of whether this conservative is right or wrong. What I want you to consider is the mindset, the mentality, as this is what speaks volumes. This same article could also be written from a liberal side of the coin, but, but listen carefully. That's not the point. Listen carefully to the, to the perspective as it speaks of almost a complete segregation within the country into clear factions geographically and politically. It's almost a, I ultimately don't give a crap about the other opinion. They can go away or die for all I care. I'm going to just worry about my own and my own little sphere of the world. So here it is, and I'm going to start reading this verbatim. Quote, my appreciation for rural America has grown as the lunacy of blacklists, rioting, looting, woke fascism, and a full-blown chaz has spread like a malignant cancer throughout dozens of Democratic-run cities. You know what? There really are two Americas, to which I can only say, thank God. He continues later in the article, quote, to begin with, the left's organized and oppressive violence has no effect on us, and that's primarily because the left-wing terrorists in Antifa and Black Lives Matter know not to come out here, know our cops don't kneel, and we love the Second Amendment. But it's also the left's oppressive rules that don't touch us. A little later in the article, he continues, quote, The cities are not our problem. Democratic-run cities are not our America. Democrat-on-Democrat Democrat oppression and violence is not our problem. Those who choose to live in those cities and vote Democrats are getting exactly what they voted for. They're reaping the whirlwind, and that's not worth even a moment of your peace of mind. End quote. Just absorb that mentality for a minute. It's basically... I live out here, and out here, 
the conservative values that we believe in, that's all we care about. You over there in Democratic-run city, I don't care what happens to you. You chose your bed and you're lying in it. And quite frankly, I'm not going to lose an ounce of sleep over that. That right there is in essence, in many ways, a city-state mantra of life. I'll take us back in history to two of the most powerful city-states as a comparison to that, that idea. Ancient Greece, we had Sparta and we had Athens. And they could not have been more different. And we're not going to turn this into one of my history uh, lectures in, the, in a humanities class. We're going to keep it really simple. But Athens, if you would have to describe Athens, Greece, incredibly cosmopolitan. They were artists. They were philosophers. They were merchants. They were traders. They were intellectuals. They were exploring democracy. Uh, contrast that to Sparta. They were farmers. Their males were warriors above warriors. They were soldiers. They were very practical. They were functional. They didn't waste their time on the arts and the intellect. They lived under an oligarchy kingship model. Uh, So these two worlds, as you can just picture, are incredibly different culturally. If one would have traveled to Athens and then to Sparta... One could scarcely find the common Greek feel. Uh, Could we now divide America in the progressive versus conservative factions of left versus right? You know, the United States in many ways has mirrored vastly different lifestyles in the rural Midwest or South compared to, say, urban centers on the East and the West Coast. But in this era of hyperpartisanship and the activist use of court systems to seemingly oppose federal policy and initiatives through sanctuary cities and lawsuits is in essence creating a city-state type system. We enforce what we believe, but we will fight and deny what we don't. Federal government be damned seems to be the motto. So just as on the personal level, Society seems to divide the life into those that are on the left and the right. Um, It's now showing itself in the geography of where we live in a more and more pronounced way. We can actually see this in the migration of populations within the United States. For the most part, regardless of candidate, States like California, New York, Oregon are guaranteed wins for the Democrats. You know, I often joke that I don't even need to watch on election night for three quarters of the time on where the states are going to go. Because you know, and I already know, there are certain states that are going to vote a certain way. Uh, they, they simply will vote for the Dem- Democrat regardless of the candidate. And there's going to be very little analysis Uh, beyond uh, choose a liberal, we hate Donald Trump. Likewise, there are certain states in the South, certain states in the Midwest, where where traditionally they're just going to vote for Trump no matter what. And we know this, and we watch this, and we see it play itself out. So as long as there's this simple binary 
in play, a two-party system with a stranglehold on power, who, by the way, if I can digress just a minute, there's only really one guaranteed thing that you could say that the Democrats in Washington, D.C. and the Republicans agree on in Washington, D.C. It's to shoot down anybody from a third party or outside of the traditional structure first and foremost. Because if they do this, they guarantee with only two parties they're going to share power. Sure, in one election cycle, one's going to be in power, the other's going to be the minority, but there'll be another election soon enough where it can flip-flop back and forth. So this two-party system really heightens an us-versus-them mentality when they play it on the population, which they do all the time. Uh, But I digress from my disdain of the two-party system, and especially these two parties that we have now. Uh, But... The reality is the separation will most likely continue in this country. Migration, which is 1,000% more free in the United States from state to state, say, versus migration from one city-state to another during the time of the Greeks, we see the exaggeration of people choosing to live in an area where they are surrounded by people who think like them, vote like them, And this becomes more and more pronounced the more and more the federal government attempts to alter and change and infringe on the rights and values of either group. So what does this actually all mean? Uh, What are what are the potential outcomes? I mean, the chance of a full out secession of a state from the country seems highly Unlikely. Although California uh, recently and Texas at times have flirted and floated the idea that they should secede from the United States. The truth is, economically, the federal government has sunk its tentacles so deeply in the states economically, secession from the country would almost instantaneously thrust that state, even the strongest states, into depression. Secondly, The thought of state militarily attempting to take on the largest and most powerful military in the world to gain independence um, seems comical or almost absurd. And finally, the massive federal government, like every government in history, tends to try to get more power. And once it has it, it would never give it back voluntarily to a city or a state. So the United States becoming a city-state in which there's 50 individual states uh, with almost complete autonomy in the traditional sense of the word seems not possible. But at the same time, the very politics of division driven by our media, by politicians, our technology filter bubbles we live in, it's driving a movement that seems to be unstoppable. Mr. Nolte in that article that I read has hit on something incredibly real. It captures a certain sentiment of the population, almost a utopian world where you can live amongst people who think, act, and believe like you, and the politicians enact the laws and the rules that the population would like them to do. It's more of a leave me alone. I want nothing to do with your liberal or conservative opinions and when that happens I won't be touched 
and it won't bother me at all. You know, I believe we're entering in an era in American culture that we have never crossed before. A world in which America isn't the first, isn't first the country, the flag, the nation, but rather its other self-interests and personal tribes are forming. Poll after poll is starting to show Democrats think Republicans are stupid or uninformed, and Republicans think the same way. This isn't a world of one nation. These are tribal factions existing together with eyes looking over their shoulder without trust or desire to join with the other side. In fact, what we're starting to see in the mentality in America is I want nothing to do with anybody who doesn't think or believe like me. We are seeing more and more this thing. I'm leaving X city because the policies of Y. Or I would never move to that city, that state, because of X. Thus, people are moving and living in areas or regions not just for economic opportunity, the weather, or family, but rather they are choosing places to live whether they believe they are liberal or conservative and they know in general in their city, their county, or state governments that they will enact policies that match their views. This is supposed to be what the federal politicians are supposed to do represent all people in their district all the time and it's not happening so it is a new tribalism that's beginning to emerge now could this actually be a positive i mean potentially we could see that if you know all citizens still at the core remain loyal to the nation if we're in a national emergency or if we're going through a world war, you know, even as people live in a more insulated region or state, you know, the Greeks, when confronted as a whole, for example, when Xerxes attempted to invade the Greek mainland, the Spartans and the Athenians and the Corinthians, they all banded together under the common banner of quote-unquote Greek to fend off this foreign invading army. You know, if people have the ability to show respect to the differences, even when they choose to not live or be a part of that world, you know, the United States is the most diverse country in the history of the world, and valuing properly the diversity is key across the regions, even across state lines, as one travels from rural to suburb to urban, if we can collectively demonstrate empathy in the way we each operate, it would be a key to success that even if geographically people locate and cluster of their like-minded, if they can somehow show that ability to remain empathetic. However, if this new tribalism that seems to emerge, it continues to move forward, there is a very powerful danger, and I'm sure you know what that is. 
if we look back to ancient Greece, at one point the Spartans, in fear of Athens trying to control everything in the region, there was a bitter, bloody war that ripped the country apart. If our often reprehensible politicians continue to stoke divide and division amongst the people, pitting each side against the other in an attempt to distract voters from them taking personal responsibility for the nation first, very bad things can happen. If the federal government sways violently from extremes, from Republican to Democrat, in a constant state of threatening the other side to implement major changes, major changes to health care, immigration, Second Amendment rights, taxation, abortion, religious freedom, or any other highly emotional aspect of life. That schism can reach serious and dangerous levels of hate, rioting, fear, anxiety, and the more violent the swings in Washington, D.C., from conservative to liberal, conservative to liberal, the more divisive the population can become. Most people, most of the time, can deal with incremental change. It's a part of life. We all get it. We all understand it. But when moronic politicians attempt to violently for just pure political demagoguery, swing life in drastic movements. People mentally go on guard and they can literally become physically ready to fight. When this divisiveness rises too high and individuals become too emotional, violence has generally been the outcome in human civilization. We know nothing stays static. Systems form, they rise, they reach an apex, they fall, and then new systems come into play. You and I may be witnessing the fall and a quasi-city-state mindset emerge in America. Of course, nobody, let alone I, can see the future. Anyone who says they know for a fact the way something is going to work out or that it won't work out is either one, a liar, they're two, extremely arrogant, or three, a fanatical crazy person. So there is no guarantee of anything one way or another. Yet, what we are seeing happen is a divergence in the population to the point that individuals' life choices where they live could become more and more based on fitting in with, the, with a tribe than any other factor. And in essence, a sanctuary city rule is nothing more than protecting a region and enforcing a political mantra, a, a, a societal ideal, a cultural belief, a ethical decision. You know, it is ironic that through the 1960s, the key was desegregation. And you heard the term the American melting pot, the idea of regardless of race, religion, opinion, we were all one society. Sadly, this seems to be breaking down with the emergence of a different mindset and mentality. One of trying to segregate and isolate one from the other side. 
It's a bunker down, get with my group and overcome this massive, oppressive federal machine. As I leave you this massive federal machine, if the citizens agree on one thing, it is they generally all hate or strongly dislike their politicians in Washington, D.C. However, curiously, they feel forced to go with one party or the other. Many of us have had that feeling, oh gosh, I have to vote for the lesser of two evils, or oh goodness, are you telling me in a country with 350 million people to choose a president, these are the two people that we are choosing from? It's exactly where these politicians and these two political parties want you. As this is the path of least resistance to power for them, as when they can just demonize the other side as the enemy, they don't have to be rational, objective, put together plans to solve hard problems. It's so much easier to play on emotions and name call. Oh, you need to vote for me because that side is racist, they're sexist, they're misogynist, uh, they're a socialist, uh, they'll destroy the country. That, that's so easy for them to play those emotions. Sadly, though, it works for them. And as it works for them, they wrestle more and more power and spending more and more money and putting the country in more and more debt than any time in our history. If we wanted to not go down the tribalistic city-state model, maybe the one solution is to break up these parties by introducing a viable third or fourth alternative to force the powerful to bring in more diverse opinions. Something all of us need to consider instead of being subservient to these two parties assuming they always have to be there the way they are and we're stuck with them because they don't in general represent many of us well and in the end creating and voting in alternatives may be a solution and and hopefully someday more viable options and candidates will emerge if not the current path tells us that we are moving not from creating not from our history of one nation we're all americans first to more of a tribalistic model whereby we cluster in groups of people that think like us act like us and at the local the city or the state level at least they feel in moving geographically to regions that that region supports their mindset how deep and grand that will go, it's hard to tell. But a sanctuary city is nothing more than the fledgling concept of a city-state model that has been seen throughout history. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found value for the time you invested with me today. For discussion on this topic and many others, I invite you to join our private forums. I personally will be over there and engaging with everyone. And it's just a community of like-minded thinkers just like yourself. If you're not a member yet and looking for a community online that is very different, go to www.daviddhopkins.com. That's www.daviddhopkins.com. Follow the links 
and you can join us. You know, the best way to expand intellectually is to engage in a real dialogue in a way that fosters growth, understanding, and rigorous discussion without all the name-calling, demagoguery, and flame-throwing silliness of social media and the rest of society. This is what the private forum provides. I would love to see you join. Until the next episode, all my very best to you and your family.